0: today.
1: All right, if you'll stand with me, and as we open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 8 this morning. Pastor Chris is going to continue our series in Genesis. So again, if you'll open up to chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, uh, this passage can be found on page 3. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Let's pray. God, we just ask this morning that as we open your word and as Pastor Chris comes to share uh, from scripture, God, may we just be mindful of your holiness, God, know of your, uh, your judgment and your righteousness, uh, but Lord, also uh, just open our hearts to the grace that you have uh, for mankind, God, and that you've given through your son. Uh, Lord, may you just make us more like him this morning, in Christ's name, amen. amen.
0: Thank you, Kirk. Well, if, I, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please keep them open to Genesis 6, because all I can say here to start off is that Genesis 6 is one strange and difficult passage of Scripture. Uh, It's just plain strange, sons of God marrying daughters of men, the Nephilim or the giants as you heard in the New King James, the mighty men of God. Perhaps you've even heard explanations of this passage that sound like a great plot for a B-movie horror flick. I mean, angels, coming down to earth and having sex with women and producing hybrid demon babies and a master race of supermen. I mean, that sounds wild, doesn't it? I mean, some of you are like, what? What's he talking? No, right here, that's what I'm talking about. As you read what others have to say about this passage, and it's a perplexing one, you begin to sometimes in their explanations enter into the mythology The mythologies of gods, sons of gods, demigods, supermen, and wonder women. I mean, it sounds like something out of the Marvel and DC universes, which I find interesting. Even all of that really reflects some of what you see in this passage. You know you're in trouble when you tell people the passage you're preaching on, and they shake their heads with glee and say, I can't wait to see what you come up with on that, and then walk away chuckling. And yes, I'm looking at you, Jim. I'm looking at you. Thank you for that encouragement. I just want to thank, too, while I'm at it, Pastor Bruce for once again strategically planning his vacation on the hardest uh, passage uh, message in the series. I truly think he sits down, looks at where's it going. Oh, that's the hard one. Plan vacation. Email Pastor Chris and say, "Hey, uh, lucky you." Last year, it was Daniel 4, the entire chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpretation. But this year, it's not only the hardest passage in the series, but it's the hardest passage in the book of Genesis, and many would believe the hardest passage in the whole Bible, and I wouldn't disagree with that assessment after uh, exploring this, agonizing over this for the last month or so. And yes, I did say a month, so you know, buckle in there and, and stay focused. Um, there are more questions about this passage than there are answers. That's just a fact. So let me say up front, I'll just be touching the surface of this passage. There's handouts on the back. If you want know more about giants, you want to know more about the length of, of the, of the uh, people in, before the flood living to 900 years. If you want a very detailed exegetical analysis of this passage explaining why I'm going to take the views I want, it's all back there on that table. Knock yourself out. But here's what I want to say, and I've had to say it to myself, and I want to say it to you, and it's this. Don't be distracted by the unknowns of this passage. Don't give in to the temptation to chase rabbit trails, start speculating, and trying to fill in all the gaps. When the answers aren't there, they're not there for a reason. God doesn't stutter. He speaks clearly. And when he leaves gaps, there's a reason for those gaps. Because even though... Even though this passage is filled with mysteries, the message, the message of the passage is clear and it's sobering. So right up front, I want to give you the main idea and really the outline of this message, and it's this. The flood of human depravity always results in a flood of divine destruction. So receive. God's gracious offer of divine deliverance before it's too late. That's the idea. If you want it real simple, when sin multiplies, God's judgment draws nearer and nearer. So run to his way of escape before it's too late. You see, Jesus said the days before his second coming when God would judge the world, will judge the world with burning fire, would be just like the days of Noah. So what we're looking at is not just something way in the past. It's telling you what it's like now and only going to get even more like before Christ returns. And so pay attention and focus. The message is simple, it's sobering, and the structure is in three parts. Verses 1 through 4, give us the flood of human depravity verses 5 through 7 give us the flood of divine destruction and verse 8 is the glimmer of hope the grace of divine deliverance so are you ready all right let's dive in and the pun is intended let's see number one the flood of human depravity the flood of human depravity now let me say First of all, this is the flood before the flood. The flood of depravity is the cause of the flood of destruction. And often that gets overlooked in all the uh, perplexities and mysteries of the passage. And I want to say up front what depravity means, because that's key to this message and to this passage. Depravity means that the corruption of sin has extended to all aspects of our nature. That when Adam fell, Adam and Eve fell, and when they began to have children, they passed on to their children, 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 all the way down to every single person that's born today, a sin nature that is corrupt and it taints everything about us. That's depravity. That everything about us is tainted by sin such that we can do nothing in and of ourselves, to make ourselves worthy before God. In fact, we not only only cannot make ourselves worthy before God, we can't even cooperate with God and say, God, you do your part, I'll do my part, and together we'll save me. No. Depravity says we are corrupt and polluted, we are rotten to the core. Now, it's often said and rightly so, about depravity. Depravity does not mean people cannot or do not do actions that are good. Unsaved people do good things all the time. Good things that are good in in our sight, even good in God's sight, that he's glad they do. The thing is, those good deeds aren't worthy of, of, of receiving salvation. The second thing about it is depravity does not mean that fallen people have no conscience and they can't discern between good and evil and and be convicted of the wrong and, and strive to do the good. That happens all the time. But doing their good is still tainted with sin and it will never measure up to God. And the third thing that's often said about depravity is it doesn't mean that people indulge in every form of sin or in any sin to its greatest extent. In other words, really good-looking people on the outside are still depraved because total depravity does not mean that you will act out constantly and do the most evil things and do all the evil things you could. Now, I just gave you you know, three ways that depravity is, 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 is to be understood. Now, let me say this about this passage. Even though those three things are true, in this passage, it's a flood of depravity. It's a flood of depravity such that people really aren't doing anything good at all, okay? They could, they're, they're able to, but they don't. Also, their conscience is such that they're not convicted about what they're doing, and they're uh, accepting and approving All that is evil and encouraging others to do it more. And thirdly, they are sinning to the greatest extent possible. So this is as bad as it gets. And Jesus says, it's going to get that way again before I come back. This is a flood of depravity. So let's look in verses 1 through 4. And let's just see exactly what this means. How it's described for us from an earthly perspective in verses six through four notice first of all there's a a flood of depraved marriages there is a flood of depraved marriages notice verse one it came about that when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were beautiful the hebrew word is good 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 looking and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. In fact, you can drop down to verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also after, afterward, when? When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay, so buckle up. Here's the hard part of this passage, and we just gotta we just gotta we gotta dig through it, okay? Are you ready? Are you with me? Here we are. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? I have no clue. No, I'm serious. I, there's four basic views. There's four basic views, and we're just going to skim the surface. So if you hold to one of these views that I that I say, well, I don't think that's the best, and you say, hey, I didn't, you didn't give all the arguments. You're right. I didn't give all the arguments. We do need to get out of here at some point before 6 p.m. Okay, so here's what we need to do. Four basic views. The first view is the fall of angels view. The fall of angels view. In this view, the sons of God are fallen angels. The daughters of men are female humans. The sin is intermarriage between demons and women. The children, and this is where it can get weird, the Nephilim or the mighty men in verse 4 are the offspring of demon... And human marriages and become a super race of angel human hybrids okay now okay we just got to keep moving I just cannot digress why would this view why would someone hold this view besides watching a lot of late-night movies and no I, I don't want to mock this view because but it is wild right but listen let me say this very clearly I don't discount this view because it's wild, because the Bible's filled with wild things. We don't discount things just because it sounds strange to us or irrational to us. We discount based on what the Bible teaches. Are you with me? So I want to make that very clear on this. So why would they see this view? Well, number one, because the only other direct use of the phrase, the sons of God, is found three times in the book of Job, and it refers to holy angels gathered around the throne of God. So one of the ways you do Bible study is what do sons of God mean. It looks weird in this passage. Oh, it's used three times in Job, refers to angels. Come back to this passage, therefore it's angels. This view is also the earliest Jewish and Christian interpretation of the passage. And some have seen a connection between this passage and 2 Peter and Jude that seem to connect fallen angels with sexual immorality. So that's kind of the defense. But even though this view is an old one and has a lot going for it, I don't think it holds up to the biblical evidence and for these reasons. Why are fallen angels, and they are fallen if they're having sex with women, contrary to what God would obviously set in order, why would fallen angels be called the sons of God? In fact, when you go to Job, where the sons of God are angels, Satan is among them, but he's very separate from them. Listen, sons of God is a good title for holy angels. It's a lousy one for demonic fallen angels who are defying God. Also, if someone argues, well, they were holy, but they fell when they chose to have sex with women, then you have a second fall of angels after creation, in addition to the original fall of angels before creation. You got all these multiple uh, holy angels going rogue on the Lord. Besides, how do fallen angels or otherwise marry and conceive and have children you've got to understand these these sons of god are not raping women as much as they are marrying them now it may be through force it may be through in an abusive exploitive way as we're going to see in a moment but it is married so these are angels that are not swooping down for a sexual orgy these are angels if it's angels they're coming down and going through a marriage ceremony and having children, that then raises the question, and, and again, I'm trying to just hang with me here, how in the world can an angel provide his seed in order to fertilize the egg of a female woman, and what is that? what does that produce? Well, of course, according to this view, it produces giants and demigods, and these weird half-human, half-angel people, in which case God had to bring the flood to wipe out that hybrid race. But Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two, thirty 30, that angels neither marry or are given in marriage. And you say, well, yeah, and it says in heaven. But Listen. When Jesus says they're not, not, they're not, they don't marry and they don't give and aren't given in marriage, the implication, the clear implication is these angels do not, which are always, by the way, in Scripture represented as men, not women, do not have the reproductive capacities to procreate because they were never intended to procreate. So God didn't build them with that capacity. And if one argues that these fallen angels entered the bodies of men to have sex with the daughters of men, then the sons of God are no longer fallen angels. They're now men who are demon-possessed, and that's a whole different view. Are you with me? Okay, if you're not weirded out yet, hang with me. Finally... I would argue that the, angels are, not the fo- angels are not the focus of this passage anyway. As I delve through this passage, I looked at chapter 5, I, I looked at chapter 6, and I counted there's over 25 direct references to men or mankind or humanity. Over and over and over, this passage is filled with men. In fact, when God says, I'm going to bring the flood, he doesn't mention sinning angels one time. It's all about man's sin, not angel sin. And yet, if angels perpetrated this, and the daughters of women are passive and being being forced into this, the, the culpability lies with the angels, not with men. And so for these reasons, I would say that this is not likely. Now over time, even though this was the earliest view, over time this view fell out of favor with both Jewish and Christian interpreters. Granted, it's the earliest understanding by both Jews and Christians, but it fell out of popularity. And one Jewish rabbi who took on this next view, which is the line of Seth view, he went, he said, look, it's not angels, it's the line of Seth. The sons of God are the lines of Seth. This rabbi got so serious about this, he put a curse on anyone who taught the angel view. If you uh, curse it's he who teaches the angel view. Now, I'm not so confident of what this passage means that I'm going to curse anybody that doesn't agree with my view. But it shows you that this is people get passionate about this. So the line of Seth, what does that mean? Well, the sons of God are not fallen angels. They are the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, the seed of the woman that precedes in chapter 5. Right there in chapter 5. The daughters of men then become the line of Cain, the seed of Satan, the, the ungodly line that is highlighted in chapter 4. The sin, therefore, is not the intermarriage between angels and men. The sin is the intermarriage between the seed of the woman, the godly seed of Seth, and the seed of the serpent, the ungodly seed of Cain. And it really makes sense when you look at it, because on the surface, it makes a lot of sense. Chapter 4, the ungodly line of Cain. Chapter 5, the godly line of Seth. Chapter 6, the sons of God, godly men, begin to compromise their faith and marry the ungodly believers from the line of Cain. And so the sin would be unequally yoked. And therefore, the godly line of Seth became compromised and ungodly. The whole earth filled with ungodly people and God therefore had to bring the flood well on the surface it makes sense but I don't think it holds up to the biblical evidence first of all reducing the daughters of men in verse 2 reducing the daughters of men to just some men or some women the line of Cain seems to limit the use of man there too much notice In verse uh, 1, it says, Now it came about when men, mankind, humankind, began to multiply. Then you come to verse 2, the daughters of men. The logical thought is the daughters of humankind. All, all daughters, regardless of whether they're believers or unbelievers. And furthermore, if you read through chapters 4 through 5, you discover that chapter 4 focuses on the sons of the Lion of Cain, and chapter 5 repeats nine times talking about the daughters of the Lion of Seth. It's the total opposite. If you really look at the evidence, it's the sons of Cain that are emphasized, and it's the daughters of Seth that get repeated nine times. So when you come to the daughters of men, you would logically think, of Seth's line rather than Cain's, and so it just breaks down. It just breaks down. Besides, the focus in these verses, as we're going to see, is not just on one uh, God, you know, one line of Seth and one line of Cain. The focus is all of humanity. All of humanity is corrupt and sinning before God. Now, I will say this on this view: the children are not angelic hybrids, they're just depraved human beings. So, the weakness of the first two views led uh, to this fourth view. And this view, too, has Jewish support, it has cultural support, it has historical report uh, uh, support, and I believe it has biblical support, and it is this. The rule of tyrants view. The sons of God... Are the rule of tyrants in the land and so here's how it breaks down the sons of God are not angels they're not the believing line of Seth they're tyrants human rulers and despots who are viewed as divine kings over the earth in other words hey you're a king you're a leader you're a despot and I lay claim I'm a son of God or You could literally translate it, I'm a son of the gods, okay? Because these guys aren't believers. They're, They're defying God. And what they're saying is, hey, I've got my little fiefdom here, and I'm strutting my stuff on the earth, and God gave dominion to man, and let me tell you, I'm large and in charge. I'm a son of God. And this is my territory. The daughters of men then become, become not just the, any, a specific line. The daughters of men is any woman they see, they think is beautiful, they choose to marry, and the implication, I think, is they're building harems in order to propagate many sons, in order to lay claim to immortality. So the idea is, I, I, I'm a son of God. I rule this place, and hey, you're pretty good looking. I'm going to marry you. And hey, you're pretty good looking. I'm going to marry you. In fact, I can take of any woman I want. And so the sin here is polygamy. To make a name for oneself by creating a harem of wives and building a ruling dynasty as king, of kings who rule over the world like gods. I am a son of God. And you can see how uh, how that echoes into the true son of God, who is the seed of the woman. The children, then, possibly could be the Nephilim, or translated in the New King James, giants, or more likely the mighty men who make a name for themselves by sexual conquest and physical violence, just like their tyrannical fathers. Now this fits, this interpretation is convincing to me, or at least it is on this day. Uh, This is convincing to me because it fits the progression from Cain doing things his own way and murdering violently his brother in chapter 4 to building a city to make a name for himself and naming it after his son in chapter four, to Cain's grandson, Lamech, who helped to create a civilization filled with sexual immorality, physical brutality, spiritual idolatry, all in defiance of God, chapter four, to where we come into six, now men are claiming the divine right to rule as sons of God and they're doing it through sexual immorality, physical brutality and spiritual idolatry to make a name for themselves through immortality by bearing these many sons uh, through these many wives and and going on. What's interesting is you stick with us through the weeks to come in chapter 10 we're going to meet Nimrod and Nimrod is the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, who after the flood, guess what? He becomes a city builder, and he builds Babylon, and he builds Nineveh, two greatest enemies of Israel. He's a city builder. He's a mighty hunter. He's, he's called a mighty one, a mighty man, just like here. And, uh, and, and hunting was the sport of kings, And he's a kingdom ruler. He establishes the kingdom over all of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, including Babylonia in the south and Assyria in the north, again, arch enemies of Israel in the future. And ultimately, it's in the first city he built was called, are you ready? Babel. And he was a part of the tower building to make a name for themselves. I think it all fits together. Also, as you read on through Genesis, we see Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. We see Abimelech, another king, who when they see Abraham's wife, Sarah, and she's good looking, what do they do? They take her. They take her. They take her. So we see this idea of tyrants. Now, last of all, there's a fourth view that I lean toward, and it's this. And and I think this is the most complete uh, uh, picture of of what's going on here. The rule of demon-influenced tyrants. So take the third view, kind of mix it up with view one, and you've got tyrants who behind them are demonic forces encouraging and and promoting them in this self-exaltation in the defiance of God so that these men become titans of sin. And they're just striding over the earth, and they are spreading sexual immorality, they are increasing physical brutality and cruelty, and they are spreading uh, They are spreading spiritual idolatry, saying, hey, don't call on the name of the Lord, don't make his name famous, make a name for yourself. In fact, help me make a name for me. And when you get to the Tower of Babel, you even see technological and cultural superiority used to promote sin and defiance of God. Now, does any of this sound familiar to our day? And it's where we're headed, and it's only going to increase until Christ comes. So in this view, the sons of God are still tyrants, but behind them and over them are demonic forces doing Satan's bidding. The daughters of men are still any woman that they want. The sin is still polygamy and building a harem and a dynasty. The children are still human beings. They're not demonic hybrids. And most likely, the children are the mighty men. And so what happens is you have these tyrannical men building these harems and creating, uh, especially giving birth to sons and raising them to be titans of sin, and to be mighty men of violence. And it's interesting, because as you read next week in chapter 6, God says twice, the earth is filled with violence. Therefore, the flood is coming. Well, there we made it, okay? So look at your neighbor and say, okay, we made it. But don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. A lot of questions we don't know. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take a bullet for that any of these views. But I'll tell you this the point is this, the point is this there is a flood of sexual immorality as tyrants and titans of sin rule the world, abuse their power, exploit women, and pervert God's institution of marriage. And sad today, these tyrants and titans still stride over the earth and are still in places of power bragging about how they can see a beautiful woman and do to them whatever they want. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. And it's not limited to one nation. And it's not limited to one political party. It's where the flood of depravity is going. It did it before in the days of Noah, and it's doing it again before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, the second thing out of this is a flood of depraved might. Out of this is a flood of depraved might, and we see this especially not only in verse 1 and 2 with the forceful violent taking and marriages being made and building of a harem that's implied there, but in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Literally, men of name. I find that fascinating. Men of name, men of fame. They have a name. And yet, in chapter 5, we are to call on the name of the Lord. And in chapter 10, they build a tower to make a name for themselves. Very interesting. Who are the Nephilim and the mighty men of old who were famous, or I would say infamous, Well, according to the fallen angel view, you got these demonic human hybrids from fallen angels having sex with women. Some even see in here Moses just bringing mythology to bear in the Bible. And they see the the beginnings of the demigods of the old mythologies like Hercules, Achilles, and Thor who were all hybrids of God and men. But according to the rule of tyrants' view, the Nephilim and the mighty men are still human beings and not demonic hybrids. Now, they're exceptional human beings. As the New King James, and I think it's a good translation, called the Nephilim giants, these are men of exceptional stature and size. I want you to think in terms of Goliath. And there's a handout back there. There's more than just Goliath. There's giants all throughout the Bible. But you know what's interesting about the giants all throughout the Bible? The giants all throughout the Bible were mighty warriors who taunted God and defied God and taunted the people of God. They were always enemies. You don't find giants in the Bible being godly people making a name, the name of God famous. They're defiers. They're violent men. And so the question in chapter, or verse 4, is this. The question is, uh, are these guys contemporaries with the tyrants, the sons of gods? Are they conceived by the tyrants, the sons of gods? Or are they cooperating with them in building harems and ruling as tyrants? Well, the first thing I want you to see, and I just... It's spelled out in your notes. The Nephilim appear to be giants, men of great size and strength. You can look that up in Scripture. They show up again. in, in, in The only other time this word Nephilim is used, it's Numbers 13. And it's, it's where they are uh, entering into the promised land. And they say... Wow, remember, they're big. We saw the sons of Anak there, and we saw the Nephilim, and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And I think what they're simply saying is, there are giants in the promised land. There are giants. And so I think that's all it is. Now, they're big. Goliath was nine foot tall. Uh, in fact, the article back there will tell you all about, uh, they're, they're really strange people. One giant in the Bible has six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Now, I don't know if that makes you run faster and grab hard. I don't know what that means, but they're just weird. I mean, they're scary people. They're scary people. And what about the mighty men? The mighty men of fame or infamy might simply be, and it seems to be, the offspring of the tyrants and their harems. The verb here for mighty men, when it's used as a verb, it means to be act superior, to behave aggressively, to be a violent person. And yet when it's used as a noun, it can refer to a hero or it can refer to a despot. So think of David's mighty men, right? Same word, ordinary men, mighty men, great warriors, but godly men who fought on God's behalf. But here we have mighty men in the idea of violent aggressors who either are the children of the sons of God, the tyrants, or they're the, they do their dirty work. Okay, they're their giants. So I, 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 we, we just don't know. There's just a lot of questions. So here, here, here we come to this. How are these people related to the tyrannical sons of God? I would say to you, the Nephilim appeared to simply be contemporaries of the tyrants. There were tyrants, there were aggressive, God-defying giants in the land, and I would say that the mighty men actually appear to be the children of the tyrants or their cronies, their hit squad, that do their violent expansion of their kingdom. Now again, I've given you the best I can. Here's the point you don't want to miss. There is a flood of physical brutality and cruelty as tyrants and titans of sin rule the world with brutal aggression and violence. So we have a flood of depraved marriages. We have a flood of depraved might. We have a flood of depraved motivations a flood of depraved motivations. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss. Don't get distracted by angels and hybrids and and who are the sons of God. Don't miss. Because here's the core of the problem. The problem is the human heart. The problem is the human heart. You see, the problem is my heart and your heart because we're all the children of Adam. You see, God sees here in verse 5 the heart of the problem. The human heart is totally corrupt and depraved due to the indwelling sin nature we have all inherited from Adam and Eve. This is the clearest passage in the Old Testament at just how totally depraved the human heart is and what it looks like when it's unleashed, uncontrolled, and unrestrained. What you see in this passage is what's in your heart. It just hasn't all come out. God in His grace and mercy, even on unsaved people, will restrain their sinfulness. Because if He didn't, this is what you get. And folks, this is what's coming and what is already here. What you see here is that the flood of depravity was extensive. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. It was extensive. It was global. The flood of depravity was intensive. Every intent of the thoughts of the heart, every every inclination, every purpose, every plan, every thought that came out was nothing but wicked and evilness. And the flood of, dep- uh, of depravity was pervasive. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. I don't even think we can comprehend. But I think we need to prepare to begin to comprehend. Because as in the days of Noah, so in the days before the coming of Christ. And so we have, finally, a flood of depraved multiplication. A flood of depraved multiplication look at verses 11 through 13 well first of all look at verse 1 now it came about that when men began to multiply here's the thing the more people the more sin the more people the more sin because every person has a sinful heart and then it says look at verses 11 through 13 now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence God looked on the earth earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. I think God wants us to know everything was corrupt. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. This word for corruption is fascinating, we can't delve into it, but it basically means we are morally ruined to the point where we are useless before God. Corrupt means to be so sinfully depraved, one lives simply to sin and has no desire to seek God. Corrupt means that we are so depraved that one thirsts for sin and feeds on it. Job says in Job 15, How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man... Who drinks iniquity like water well we're gonna see we're at a point now where they're gonna drink water and they're gonna drink a lot of it because the question becomes what does God do when he sees this flood of depravity what does God feel when he looks and he sees what does it what happens in god's heart when he sees this flood of defiance and depravity what will god do the answer is in verses 5 through 7 there will be number 2 a flood of divine destruction when there is a tidal wave of depravity there comes a greater tidal wave of judgment the flood of divine destruction And here's how we see God's response. First of all, the mercy of God is limited. The mercy of God is limited. Look at verse 3. Right in the middle of these crazy marriages and tyrants and and their violent lives. Genesis 6-3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years now here's the thing when God sees the Titans of sin striding on the earth and strutting their stuff and filling the world with violence and immorality and brutality and idolatry God says my mercy has reached a limit and he speaks of his spirit and I find that fascinating because we've already been introduced To the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 through 5. Because in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovers over the chaotic waters and brings creative power to bring order out of chaos. Guess what's going to happen when the Spirit is removed? The waters are going to rise, and the chaos is going to come, and darkness is going to fall, and judgment is going to come. The other time we see the Holy Spirit is in Genesis 2, where the Spirit breathes life into man. Man who is mere flesh. Man who is the dust of the ground. Man who, without the Spirit of God, cannot live another second. And when God removes that Spirit of life, all breath, all flesh, will return to dust. Wow. God... you see the mercy of God? 120 years. God, they didn't deserve one more second. And God said, I'm going to give them 120 years. I'm going to let you, Noah, build an ark. They're going to see the building of the ark. That's going to spread. You're going to be a preacher of righteousness. There's going to be one last opportunity. And they're going to have one last opportunity. But there is a limit to my mercy. There's a time when the door of the ark is shut by the Lord and nobody can get in. And there's going to be a time when Christ returns and it's going to be over. The day of salvation will be over. Now, some think this 120 years is a lifespan that, hey, men are so evil that if I don't limit how long they live, they're only going to live to be 120 years. The only problem with that is after the flood, men lived much longer than that. And the book of Psalms says man's years are 70 to 80. I don't think it's lifespan. I think it's a grace period. For the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all, all should come to repentance. So even though God's mercy is limited, it is not because God gets a kick out of drowning the entire population of the earth. God doesn't get a kick out of drowning every animal, creature, living, bird, thing, and eliminating the whole planet. God is not a sadist. The second thing we see is how God feels about this. The heart of God is broken. The heart of God is broken. You see, the mercy of God is limited, but it's not because he's hard-hearted. The heart of God Is broken when he looks at your sin and my sin and when he sees the growing sin in our culture the heart of God is broken look at verse 6 the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart the word for grieved is a powerful one it's a mixture of sadness and anger The holiness of God made him mad, and the love of God made him sad, and his heart was broken, grieved, and angered. And so the mercy of God is now limited. The heart of God is now broken. It means that there's only one thing left. The judgment of God is declared. The judgment of God is declared. And in verse 7, he declares it. I will blot out the man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made him. The decree of the coming flood is certain. I will blot out. And this word blot out is fascinating. It means to wash away. It means to take a cup. It's used in the Bible of taking a a bowl, turning it upside down, and wiping it clean. Now, if you're in our house my wife fights a losing battle, it would seem, with my daughter and I washing out our bowls and our plates. Now, my argument is we have a dishwasher, but somehow, in her thinking, you must have a clean bowl to put into the dishwasher. And since a happy wife is a happy life, I oblige as well as I can. But inevitably, my daughter and I, yes, Amber, you're, you're, you're included in this, we just don't clean it out fully. Well. Guess what? God is going to wipe the planet clean. He's going to wipe it clean. He's going to wipe it clean. The destruction of the coming flood, I, we, we, we need to move on. It's sure, it's severe. The scope is global. I'm sure Pastor Bruce will dwell on that in the weeks to come. The bottom line is this. God's judgment is declared on the growing depravity of mankind and it is sure it is severe it is global in scope and god will exercise his sovereign will in judging this planet and yet his judgment is selective look at verse 8 but noah found grace in the eyes of the lord but noah found grace In the eyes of the Lord. And aren't you glad that this passage and this message ends with the grace of divine deliverance? Can we get an amen? God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is sovereign. Noah didn't find grace. God's grace found Noah. Noah's heart was no better than anyone else's. Noah's heart was no better than yours and mine. Noah had a sin nature, but God in his sovereign grace said, I'm going to save one and his family. And through that one, I'm going to give all of humanity a second chance in a new beginning. You see, verse 8 comes before verse 9. Verse 9 says... Noah was righteous and blameless, but Noah wasn't righteous and blameless by his own abilities. He had a depraved heart. It was by the sovereign grace of God. And the good news is this. Noah didn't didn't have a seat on the ark due to what he did to earn it. It was God's grace. He didn't have a seat on that ark because he deserved it it was God's grace and if you're saved here this morning it's not because you earned it or worked for it it's because God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ has been poured out onto your heart and God's sovereign grace how does he save sovereign grace still calls for a human response God's grace is not only sovereign it's saving God's grace is saving. So how does God's sovereign grace save people? By grace alone through faith alone. And if you go to the book of Hebrews, you find that by faith, Noah being warned by God about the things not yet seen, it had never rained on the earth, never, ever, in reverence, in fear, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Sovereign grace is saving grace by faith alone in the promises of God. And that same grace is sanctifying. God's grace is sanctifying. God doesn't just save you, he sanctifies you. He sets you apart more and more from sin and more and more to the joy of God and the things of God. There's a reason why when Noah finds grace, he's also a righteous and blameless person because God's saving grace is always a sanctifying grace. Now, if you're good Bible students, you're saying, wait a minute, Chris, I think there's something coming up about Noah being a drunk. Is that right? And you're right. And it's worse than a drunk. After being saved on the ark, after receiving the grace of God, after offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving out of the boat, after having all that, he built a vineyard, and he made some wine, and he got drunk, and he got so drunk, he passed out naked in his own tent. And he tempted his three sons to do something they shouldn't do, and one of them did it, and a whole generation paid a price for it. You say, what about that grace now? Well, I say to you, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. So let me challenge you today. Are you born again? Has God's grace found you? Has God's grace, sovereign grace, moved into your life and transformed your corrupt, depraved heart and given you a new heart? And have you accepted Him by faith alone in His Savior? Jesus Christ? And let me ask you, if you profess that to be true, do you live a blameless and perfect life? You say, I don't think that's possible. I don't don't know if I can walk with God like that. Noah did, and Noah was no different than you. Because God's saving grace is a sanctifying grace. You say, Chris, you don't know what I've done since I've come to Christ. You don't know what I did this week. You don't know the hidden habits of my life. And you're right, I don't, but the Holy Spirit does. And I know this, if drunken Noah passed out naked, is still saved by grace, and a man of faith, you can be a woman of faith. You can be a woman, a man of faith, because God's grace is sufficient. So let me end with this. Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, as sin multiplies and God's judgment draws nearer and nearer, could I beg you today, run, run, run to the only way of escape. And I have four simple application. One, don't get caught off guard. Jesus warns in the days of Noah, they were going about business as usual. And then somebody felt a drop, and they're like, what's that? Did you spit on me? No, I didn't spit on you. And then more drops. And they said, this is a weird phenomenon. I'm sure it will end. And it didn't end. And they couldn't dog paddle their way to safety. And they couldn't hold their breath long enough. Don't get caught off our guard. Number two, run to the cross before it's too late. Run to the cross. Do you realize there came a day, 120 years, there was a day, there was an hour, and there was a second where Noah's family entered, and the Bible says the Lord shut the door. And let me tell you, there were, I'm sure, I'm speculating, hundreds of people banging, swimming, begging. And it's the Lord that shut the door. Well, run to the cross. Because the work of Noah was the only way of escape in that day, the ark. And the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the only way of escape. Run to the cross before God shuts the door. And then third, walk with God like Enoch and Noah. Listen, young people, all of us, there is a tidal wave... Of growing sin and you can lose heart and you can lose your way but understand Enoch walked with God Noah walked with God facing this corrupt world you can walk with God too and God's saving grace enables that and then finally warn others of the coming judgment Noah was a preacher of righteousness he witnessed by his words he witnessed by his walk and he witnessed by the work of doing what God gave him to do, well, you and I can do the same thing. As in the days of Noah, so in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He will come, and many will not be ready. Do not be one of those people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with... Uh, convicted hearts, realizing that the sin of this world has broken your heart, realizing that you are sad and you are mad, and there's a day of judgment that is coming. And Father, I pray that no one here would be unprepared, that no one here who doubts whether you would accept them would not would hold back. Father, I pray that we would run to the cross today that we would lay our sins before you, you already know about them, and we would l- let go of our trust in ourselves, the identity of a sexual aggressor, the identity of a physically strong person, the identity of I'll do it my way and make a name for my, we'll lay that all aside, repent and turn and trust in Jesus, the only name, the only name deserving of all the fame. The only name under heaven and earth by which people can be saved. Lord, if we need to rededicate and recommit and come and say again and afresh and anew, Lord, I'm going to walk in spite of my culture. I'm going to walk in spite of my peers. I'm going to walk in spite of my family, my spouse. I'm going to walk with you because I know on judgment day It'll be great reward, great reward, an heir of righteousness according to faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's do business with God as the team sings. <laughs>